Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How do we retain a sense of hope in the face of what seems hopeless? In this episode, we speak with the renowned climate thought leader and veteran campaigner Sir Jonathan Porrett. He's advised countless global leaders on the transition to a sustainable future over the decades, but admits time is running out. Our conversation navigates the hope we can all still hold and the role each of us can play in our own way. All our conversations take place with a live online audience. Sign up at wiserconversations.org to participate in the future. We just have suddenly recognized vulnerability, the precariousness of systems that we once took for granted. There's an upside to all of that as well in terms of us rethinking our relationship with each other, our communities. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. So why don't we start with hope? You have been going on this crusade, this, this, this mission for quite a while. There's many reasons to have given up, done something else, uh, said, you know, I've contributed my decades and I'm going to focus on other things now, whether that's a vegetable garden or your grandkids or some other projects. But you remain at the forefront of, of hope. And I guess people would love to, to hear how have you maintained and keep hope against such a long, you know, a long journey and against seemingly all odds? <laughs> yeah, so, um, since 1974, in fact, which was the year that I joined the Green Party here in the UK. Um, but to be honest, Derek, there wasn't any reason not to feel hope to start with. If you think about the time running up to the Earth Summit in 1992, which was a huge sort of outpouring of concern for people and the planet and doing things completely differently. Hope was a completely rational response to the state of the world as we knew it then and to people's apparent sort of gathering readiness to get on and sort it out. And the Earth Summit was phenomenal. You know, it put in place major new 
legal constructs, conventions and agreements and treaties and Agenda 21. And oh my God, you, you look at the output from, agenda, from um, the Earth Summit and it is phenomenal. And for that period of time after the Earth Summit, 1992 through to 1995, six, seven, whatever, again, it made sense to be hopeful because it seemed that people were really beginning to address these issues seriously and to begin to incorporate the need for change. It's only from, I would say, the turn of the century onwards that hope became a much more problematic emotional response to the state of the world. Because essentially what's happened over the last 20 years, and this is an incredibly quick explanation, is that the science about the damage that we're doing to the planet and the harm that we're inflicting on ourselves, um, the, the gap between that science and political responses to that science has just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And as the gap gets bigger between the science and the response, then hope gets frailer because it's just more tenuous to think that we've got it somewhere in our institutions and systems and norms and cultures and values that we've somehow got the wherewithal to narrow the gap, to, to make the policy and political response proportionate to the science. That's, it's in the last 20 years that, that hope has become just a, a more complicated set of emotional responses. And personally, um, you are now presenting that, you know, we have a decade. Uh, it does look still difficult. There's a lot to be done. Um, what are some of the things that the ordinary person, you know, people who don't have power or feel maybe they don't have the power, uh, that are just trying to get on with their day-to-day -day lives, you know, like us, how, what is it about the things that we could or couldn't do that, that, that we should maintain hope? I think one of the, um, the extraordinary things that happened in 2019, which was such an important year from the point of view of climate activism, because a lot changed. And we're so deep into the, into the pandemic now that a lot of people have actually forgotten just how significant 2019 was, but it was really significant, not least because of the eruption of uh, the young people's young climate activists through the school strikes and the eruption of Extinction Rebellion here in the UK and elsewhere. A lot, a lot of radical, very applied pressure being brought to bear on politicians to change their ways. But one of the most amazing things that happened then was that a lot of people who had previously essentially being bystanders, people who just stood by. They weren't, they weren't in full-on denial. They weren't the kind of people who were saying, ah, this is all rubbish, we don't need to attend to this. But they'd kind of sympathetically sat on the sidelines of the entire debate about the climate and biodiversity and so on, shrugging their shoulders and saying, that's not really for me. And in 2019, a lot of people went from being bystanders to active participants in change processes. And I think that was highly significant because what it meant was that people were taking uh, more responsibility. They were being more mindful in their own lives about needing to get some of this uh, stuff sorted out. They were listening to the words of amazing leaders like Greta Thunberg or Naomi Klein, who you did a wonderful interview with, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a host of uh, incredibly inspirational leaders who inform this movement in, in a way that I think is, is just so empowering. They were listening, they were saying, okay. And above all, they were listening to the, to the instruction really 
that they needed to find out what the bloody hell was going on, tell the truth in the words of Extinction Rebellion, because most people had not really done the work that needed to be done to get a sense of exactly what our situation looks like. So for me, rather than say, you've got to stop eating meat or you've got to stop flying, not that that's going to happen terribly much of for the foreseeable future, which is a you know another issue in itself, of course, and quite a problematic one for us to deal with. I don't really like kind of doing the lifestyle homilies because I feel sometimes that that doesn't necessarily help. But this notion of mindfulness in our own daily lives and being conscious of the implications of decisions that we take. So following through a little bit, you know, when we buy stuff, do we really, do we feel comfortable about its provenance, where it comes from, whether it impacts on people or planet, just, you know, that stuff, even that business of tracking the consequences of your daily purchases is actually, it's a really big thing. And it can be really problematic because sometimes you need, oh my God, I need a PhD in supply chain management before I can really make these decisions. So it's it's not easy, but it's I think more and more people are prepared to do that mindful um, approach to things. You know, in your book, you quote with a quote of Greta where she says, act like your house is on fire because it is. And, you know, like uh, today, as we move back into this COVID world in New Zealand, prime ministers are always trying to impart that, you know, act like you have COVID and you change the way you think about everything, you change how you move around the city, etc. But um, it's hard to connect personally with a fire that seems abstract. And when you say act like your house is on fire because it is, I think the ordinary person doesn't feel the sense of urgency, even though it's been urgent, urgent for a long time. Um, how with this COVID has created some sense of an opportunity or windows to rethink things. Uh, do you think um, that's a reality, like that's a real chance for change? Or do you think those windows have already started to close in different parts of the world? I actually do think that the COVID-19 crisis is, in some respects, a good way of rethinking the climate crisis. They are two very different things, obviously. And I think a lot of people have been making slightly facile um, comparisons between the two. But there is much in our response to the pandemic that will teach us how to do a better job on climate. And it is the immediacy, it's the totality, it's the, we just have suddenly recognized vulnerability, the precariousness of systems that we once took for granted. There's an upside to all of that as well in terms of us rethinking our relationship with each other, our communities. Uh, This is more the case, I think, in a country like the UK where we'd lost so much of the the ties that made it possible for people to live together in communities. We've seen a lot of that hollowing out of the social capital that binds people together through the last uh, 20 years of pretty raw neoliberal marketization of things. COVID-19 brought all of that back. We suddenly began to realize our dependence on uh, neighbors and colleagues and everything else. So There's a lot that we can learn from that, which I think will serve us well as we now come on to deal with climate and biodiversity crises. But whether we can get that sense of urgency uh, right in your face right now, I don't know. Um, I don't know about that. Mind you, Derek, if you think about it, it is only a few months since 
uh, all your good colleagues across the water in Australia were confronting the worst fires in Australia's history. And um, they didn't need reminding that their world was on fire. My God, I mean, it was literally on fire and it was one of the most impactful and traumatic things for Australians that they've experienced in a long time. So again, there are enough things happening immediately in people's immediate lives to remind them that this is not a distant problem for tomorrow. This is right with us right now. And I, I'm sorry to have to remind people that the planet and its climate systems is completely unconcerned by any petty disruption going on through a pandemic amongst the human species. That is of literally no relevance whatsoever to the huge unfolding changes in the Earth's complex interconnected climate systems. And we will continue to see equally disruptive, traumatic um, climate extremes and shocks to our system uh, indefinitely, as we know. So we're not going to be able to escape the immediacy of climate change, that's for sure. But as, as people, humans like to default to what they can see and the, what's in front of them and what's, you know, what they're experiencing in the moment. So even if you look at the COVID uh, response in New Zealand, there was a lot of, when we were in the previous lockdown, there was a lot of discussion and dreaming about what could be possible. And, oh, it's amazing. There's no cars on the road and all these kinds of things that were really quite interesting and wonderful, people going for walks and that kind of stuff. But as soon as it changed and people were opening up again, it seems like uh, we're very quick to, to, to forget those things that we were really valuing in a precious, thoughtful way once some sense of normal came in. So, you know, my anxiety is that we are now more yearning just to get back to normality and focus on how do you just get back to normal ways of living before even considering, okay, how do we do that and then deal with climate issues and think about these other bigger stories that we have to grapple with. Um, and that, I think, is part of the biggest individual challenge. I know I have it, you know, a lot uh, in myself, you know, thinking about, okay, it's a lot going on just as it is. How do you do all these things at once? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I very much agree with you. Um, to be honest, I, haven't, I have not been one of those out there talking about the silver linings to the pandemic and the degree to which these silver linings about rethinking the way we live, our relationship with the natural world and so on, will persist and, and will therefore um, impact on how we live um, from here and on. Because we have to be sympathetic, in, in my opinion, to basic human nature. After a shock like this, it is completely understandable that people want to rediscover what it felt like to be secure in the work that they do, in the job that they have, in the, the sense of what's going to make a better future for them and their children, if they have children, that people understandably wanted, do want to get back to something much more normal when it comes to being with other people, that sense of conviviality. I mean, the extraordinary deprivation of people just not being able to touch each other for months after months after months. I mean, this is, you know, this is an extraordinary deprivation, if you like, that many millions of people have um, felt all around the world. So I, I think we just have to be a little bit 
relaxed about people wanting to go back to some of the things that made life really good. Where obviously you and I would share a, a, a deeper concern is if they want to go back to that kind of mad, frenetic, consumption-driven uh, way of life as a substitute for a, a deeper quality of life through relationships with other people, with the planet and so on. That is much more problematic. And then you've got the political angle to add into that because of course politicians are desperately keen to get people out there consuming yeah. as much as they possibly can in order to get the wheels of the economy churning around again to get purchasing power back into the system to make it possible for jobs to be retained and possibly even new jobs to be created so that's the that's the tricky interface which i can't i can't read at the moment whether the need to have conventional economic purchasing power policies driving everything is going to is going to put the whole all the lessons we learned from COVID nineteen to one side, and we'll just get back to how quickly can we get back to that same mad form of consumption driven economic growth? Because as soon as we've got a positive GDP figure, whew, we can all take a deep sigh of relief, and everything will be fine. And then we'll sort out the climate change, and we'll do everything else we need to do, and we'll get our heads around racial inequality and Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff. And once we've got the growth figures looking the way we like them to look, which is that little graph heading up into the top right-hand corner, then everything else becomes possible. That I am nervous about, Derek, I have to mm. say, because you can see why policymakers are going there like a herd of gadarene swine. <laughs> yeah, and no, I think that is what's happening. And it is, you know, to have hope, you need a combination of, it's partly about heart, right, to know that you emotionally are connected to an idea and you believe it's possible and and you, you want to hope that it's possible. And then it's about the head, which is, well, there's there's some reality to it. There is a possibility that stacks up with ideas or science or um, numbers. And in your book, you go through, on the head front, you start with, okay, here's what we're facing. But then towards the back half, you start going down, okay, well, these are the ways out of it. These are the ways that are the big leaps forward. Um, let's not spend too much time, but on the reality of what we're facing, you give some pretty vivid pictures. Pictures, you said 400,000 equivalent of Hirosh Hiroshima's explosion. The amount of heat that emitted from that is how much we're heating up the planet every day. Uh, other, other frightening thoughts about the sea levels, you said a meter, uh, you know, this century, definitely. Um, what else is the reality? We'll spend a little bit of time because we want to just get with it and then move on to all the amazing parts that make it hopeful. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And, and that is the balancing act in, in the book, to be sure. Um, the, the reality is, it is actually remarkably simple. I mean, I know it isn't, and I really shouldn't say that because Climate science is phenomenal in its depth and breadth and um, the interconnections between all the different aspects of climate science, all brought together through this incredible global science community through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's an utterly unique institution in human history to m make use of the science and interpret the science in that way. So it is very complicated and I shouldn't really ever say climate, it's really simple. Um, Derek, but it is actually really simple because the reality is there are two sources of these greenhouse gases. Essentially, one is 
it's burning fossil fuels and using fossil fuels in one way or another, and the other is continuing conversion of forests and other critical ecosystems. Those are the two sources. And if we can get on top of those emissions, the sources of those emissions, then we have a, a route to a very different kind of prosperity in a relatively short period of time. And since we were doing this business of comparing the uh, coronavirus pandemic with the climate crisis, as it were, it, it is really clear to me that if our politicians were treating climate change as an emergency, especially those governments that have declared an emergency and then done sod all about it, odd kind of emergency in reality. But anyway, if they were really treating this as an emergency, um, the absolute core reality now is that we could meet 100% of global demand for electricity from renewable sources of electricity, non-fossil fuel electricity, by 2030, in 10 years. Forget 2050, forget 2040. If we wanted to do it, the technology makes it possible. If we wanted to deploy our capital resources, political and financial resources to make it happen, it's perfectly doable. And actually you can see it happening already all around the world. You look at the decision in India now just to drive an astonishing process of change towards renewable um, electricity. It's happening. So what is both wonderful and deeply frustrating is that we know this is now much more doable than it ever was before. And we have to get on top of that. Because if we don't, coming back to your question, the emissions keep rising. The increased concentration of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere leads to this warming effect, as we now all understand very well. Over time, that means that you get these feedback loops in natural systems where one warming effect compounds another warming effect. We just had the latest news from Antarctica, so I'm sure that's fresh in everybody's minds down there in uh, New Zealand. And then we're in, we are in serious trouble. And then you could see these end of century impacts like a minimum of a one meter sea level rise. That used to be the IPCC's, the Intergovernmental Panel's absolutely worst case that we would um, have a maximum. That was the worst outlier case of a meter sea level rise by the end of this year. Bit by bit, the consensus is, given the speed with which things are melting at both polar extremes and the world's glaciers and so on, um, that we now probably should take one meter as the likely projected sea level rise with a two meter prospect as the worst case. Now, a meter, that ain't good. I mean, there are there are hundreds of millions of people. In fact, the whole of humankind will be affected by a one meter sea level rise. So that's the urgency, that's the decade. If we don't get on and do this now, make this, this climate emergency front and center of what we're doing, then that, that's on the cards for humankind within the next 70, 80 years. And because once the dominoes start to fall, it's too late to bring a whole series of Chain, chains of events back, or you can, but it will take more than 50 plus years to do so. Exactly. And we'll have to do this really complicated, expensive business of getting these warming gases, the CO2, back out of the atmosphere. And that is, is not a happy prospect. Mm. Unfortunately, as I do explain in the book, we're going to have to, we are going to have to do that anyway, just because we, mm. we have raise the concentration in the atmosphere so much. Oh, you, you use two phrases which I think are really 
nice in tandem to decarbonize and recarbonize? Because I think people, uh, the most of the focus is, I think mentally, you think of, okay, we've got to stop using, we've got to uh, stop emitting. But there's the other side of the equation too, which, you know, there's lots of different ways we can do things that are in our control to recarbonize. And wh- why don't you share some of those, those thoughts that could accelerate? Yeah, no, this is becoming a real passion of mine. Uh, to be honest, because these are slightly clunky words, but given that we're in the the lexicon of decarbonisation, getting carbon out of our economy as much as we possibly can, then we need to remind people that there's another side to that particular coin, which is recarbonisation, which is getting carbon back into our natural systems as fast as we possibly can. And by natural systems, I mean, in particular, our forests are mangrove swamps, our wetlands, our bogs, our peatlands, the whole host of ecosystems, which are great stores of carbon. They lock up billions and billions of tons of of carbon. And for me, what is now described as nature-based solutions, so we've now got the right language to address this, which is don't think about crazy ideas like (laughs) sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere by complicated engineering means. Don't focus on that now. Focus on this extraordinary diversity of different ways of bringing the the carbon back into natural systems. And I'm loving the fact that policymakers have suddenly woken up to the fact that this is huge. This could be 10, 15, 20, 30% of the total story that we need to get our climate system back in balance. And so this is like planting trees, regenerative farming. And blue carbon in particular. And I I love the fact that New Zealand, for instance, has tremendous potential for what is referred to as blue carbon, which is where one is using marine systems. And in particular for New Zealand, um, seagrass and kelp forests and all the rest of it as stores of carbon. Uh, Kelp is one of the fastest growing plants Anywhere on the planet, it sucks CO2 more effectively out of the atmosphere than any number of trees that you care to mention. And these are potential ways forward which bring real opportunities for prosperity at the same time. But we have to be careful, Derek. As per usual, there's no, uh, you can't just say plant billions and billions of trees because a lot of trees are likely to get planted in the wrong, the wrong kind of trees planted in the wrong places. And this is a huge controversy, of course, in New Zealand right now, where people have responded to the One Billion Trees campaign essentially by saying, okay, let's have another massive binge of conifer expansion, mm-hmm. Pinus radiata springing up everywhere. That's not the best way of doing it. Indeed, there is a real huge biodiversity impact from doing this in the wrong way. And native forestry, therefore, becomes far more significant in terms of the balance of what needs to happen. Getting the policy right is something that, um, if I may for a moment be a little bit critical, uh, the government has not succeeded in doing so far and really does need to get its head around mm. in a much more applied way as you um, move towards an election. Well, I think you're still moving towards an election, <laughs> although I, I don't know about that, obviously. Yeah. But you see other countries and you cite other countries really making big efforts on things like this. Yes, it's, it's rather astonishing to pick on some of the examples where this is happening because they're not the places that you might normally expect. Well, apart from Costa Rica, which is the example that everybody loves to quote. But in the book, I've actually referred to countries like Pakistan, where 
Um, this is a country that's suffering appalling damage from deforestation and rapidly rising temperatures. It's got one of the most ambitious tree planting schemes now anywhere um, in the world. In Ethiopia, where they've done some phenomenal stuff about um, new afforestation schemes and protecting some of their old forests. And an interesting dimension, by the way, very dramatically supported by the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia, keeping an eye on how to protect the forests around some of the uh, churches and monasteries. Um, I'm not sure whether anybody wants to hear a good word ever about China these days, because so much about China is utterly repugnant and hateful indeed, in terms of their now unleashed repressive instincts, particularly with the the Uyghurs, the Muslim minority in, in the west of China, in Xinjiang. But China's tree planting is kind of staggering. It, it isn't a myth. You can see it in satellite photography. It is utterly remarkable. So people can mobilize political will if we want to get this stuff done, and we can even do right trees in the right places if we want to get it done properly. Hmm. You mentioned um, the role of the church in, uh, I think you said Ethiopia, right? What you know, because we often go into conversations with people from different religions and spiritual backgrounds and wiser, what do you think the role or opportunity of faith groups is? Because it seems like there are multiple ways in which they could be using their power and influence. Yeah, and this is a big thing for me, I must admit. I, I, I have had a personal interest in the spiritual aspects of sustainability for, well, forever, for a very long time. And it matters to me personally. It's been part of my own sustainability practice, as it were. And certainly when we're talking about hope, Derek, it's certainly part of the means by which I can sustain hope in the face of uh, ridiculous adversity, as it were. And not personally, but just adversity for the planet as a whole. So it's, it's a big deal for me. And that means that I've tracked quite diligently what has been going on in the world's major religions, but also in amongst people of faith in general, and then people who are not adherents to any particular religion or faith, but who would definitely acknowledge that their own spirituality is a critical part of what makes them who they are. And I, when I look at the world's religions, it's a, it is quite a mixed picture, because they're not all moving uniformly at the same speed to help make the world a a safer place. But I'm very struck by those faiths or religions that have a kind of creator godhead wrapped up, a, a sort of creator that, they, that the people acknowledge at, at the source of their religion, that it's becoming harder and harder to see how the way we treat that created world can possibly be uh, condoned by their church leaders, by their faith leaders. It's, it's impossible. So for me, oddly, because I'm not a, a huge fan of the way the Catholic Church has dealt with many issues over many, many years, um, particularly family planning, just to pitch that one in there to stir the pot a bit. Um, but the Pope is an utterly remarkable leader. I mean, the encyclical, his Laudate Si encyclical five years ago, is one of the most remarkable documents reflecting on the relationship between the human species and God's earth, 
that's ever been written. And it was not written for Catholics, of course. It was written for people of all faiths, very deliberately written for people of all faiths and of no faith. And it's that quality of leadership where the language is different, the feel of it is different, the whole depth of engagement with, with the natural world. Um, as a lot of people commented afterwards, there is no doubt that, that the Pope was influenced by his time in South America, very directly influenced by indigenous people. And that there is something of his, of that perception of how indigenous people relate differently to the world than people of faith in, um, in the rest of the world. So I look for these patterns of leadership. I wish they were more pronounced. I wish they move faster. I wish that um, this was a bigger factor in the kind of institutional shift that we need, but it is growing. And mm. I believe it will be much more important than it is today. Mm. And the voice of Islam, you touch on as well, like in the Quran, it's consistently, you know. Uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, yeah. I, and I, I'm, I'm no scholar of Islam, unfortunately, but when people point me to the depth, the intensity, the frequency of references to uh, God's earth to to the natural world in the Quran. It is quite remarkable, and the teaching that you find um, in many parts of Islam today is very deep, very genuine, and really important. And um, I was reflecting on that particularly. We we've done quite a lot of work in uh, Forum for the Future. Done quite a lot of work in Indonesia, and in Indonesia, it matters enormously that there is a kind of green mosque and a, a, a green movement there which I think could become even more influential mm. in terms of trying to get the balance right between economic prosperity and the need to protect that nation's um, somewhat endangered uh, natural environment. Yeah, it's fascinating. If there was such a kind of leadership and compelling, um, I guess, message equivalent to what the Pope has put out for the uh, Muslim community in all different parts of the world, obviously also at the cradle of, you know, the home of petrochemicals, um, there could be, you know, significant, I guess, transformation in the way people see their faith tied up with this, this issue that we have as a generation. Um, before we go, there are lots of great questions, but you know, when I first got into this, the overall movement of sustainability as a total newbie uh, almost 10 years ago, one of the things I first picked up on as something to liken it to, in terms of the size of the challenge, but the ability to change it was the abolition movement, particularly in the UK, where I had, you know, read up on Wilberforce and different things and how basically it was as bad as, you know, 70% of the politicians in the House of Parliament owned businesses that traded slaves like it was even it even seemed worse because when you go to some parliament like new zealand or you know even the the senate in the u.s you won't look around and have 80 percent of them actually owning oil fields like they'll have lots of lobbying and influence but when you've got the actual parliament where actually they are directly owning controlling trading buying you know human lives and it, it's a real business but you know it was overcome right with persistence and vision and hope what do you think we can learn and take from it? Because obviously it was not easy. No, no. It is, a, it is a, an extraordinary story. And I do, I'm full of admiration for people in the US in particular now who have 
developed a really powerful um, way of thinking about the links between the abolition movement um, in America and addressing today's crises of exploitation, whether that's exploitation of the earth, continuing exploitation of people of color, exploitation of women, exploitation of so many millions of workers in a cruel and uncaring economy. And maybe people begin to feel a bit uncomfortable about the way these connections are being made, but these exploitative, persistent patterns all go back to the same source, which is a belief about creating wealth that is clearly corrupted in its very essence. You can't really look to a sustainable way of creating wealth that depends on inflicting unspeakable cruelty on people, on other people, on planet, on other species, and so on. And for me, this deepening of the analysis that is going on now, some people call it intersectionality, I like to think of it as a much more holistic way of understanding the roots of the problem, the root causes of our problem. That is so powerful. And the environmental justice movement in America is, is now... Uh, more articulate in expressing these things, making the links to the abolition movement, demonstrating the importance of getting the tactics right, because, of course, the whole story about the abolition movement was people spent an awful lot of time fighting with each other about the tactics. Should we go for getting rid of the trade or getting rid altogether of slavery? Should we be progressive and moderate in our approaches or should we be much more radical and take direct action? Everything to do with the climate crisis today, exactly the same spectrum of tactical responses um, that you could see in the abolition movement. But it is, it is for me, a really powerful analogy to draw on. The questions we've got, a number of them focus on the individual, you know, what can I do question. How do we make it accessible, simple, actionable on an everyday level without going into, you know, being a full-time campaigner if I don't, if I don't feel like that's what I want to do with my life. Or another approach is, well, there are other people campaigning. Which are the ones that maybe we should support? We know that they're doing the right things. What are the biggest movements that we should get behind as individuals, but not necessarily, you know, become a campaigner? You must get this kind of question all the time because I think people, you know, they don't know what, what's the best thing to do as an individual. Yeah. My, I, I kind of... <laughs> I suspect people give themselves sometimes a harder time than they need to. And, and there are so many ways in which we can live more truthfully on the basis of what we now feel about the environment, about the natural world and about oppression of people and so on. But we have to make some decisions. And for me, it's very simple. Some people will be massively concerned about social justice issues and go with the instinct. If that's what concerns you, then make that the priority of your support for others and your active involvement as a citizen. But what we need is, of course, all the social justice movements to be applied when it comes to issues to do with the natural world, not to treat them as separate silos. It used to bug me, Derek, I cannot tell you how much it used to bug me. When I was director of Friends of the Earth back in the oh, 1980s, it was obvious that animal welfare issues were a critical part of coming up with any sensible idea about sustainable food and farming systems. How could, you, how could you even speak in public unless you were prepared to acknowledge the insanity 
of, of the cruelty inflicted on billions, billions of domestic animals every year. How could you have a sensible approach to this? In Friends of the Earth in those days, animal welfare was a completely separate box. It was nothing to do with uh, environmental work. And please don't clutter up the horizon, Jonathan, because we need to focus on what it is that will get people to do something about food and farming from a natural environment point of view. If it's animal welfare that, that seizes your, that your passion and makes you feel that this is something you have to address, do that. I go with the instinct, don't sweat the totality of the sustainability spectrum. It's impossible. I mean, it's literally impossible to do everything that you would need to do if you wanted to be a good citizen in every single one of those uh, areas of concern. Literally impossible. One uh, question from Jerry, who also wants to let you know that um, she's proud to have run in the Hillcrest High School Relay in the 1987 Athletics Day at the Porritt Stadium, named after your father, grandfather. Um, she was saying, what is the one thing that you think we can take from covid uh, is there one thing that we can learn from how people are responding or reacting to in the pandemic to accelerate that sense of urgency? I'll give you two things, because I think they're, they're very different in kind, but they are both, in my opinion, really important. The first is humility. Um, we, we've had to suffer over the decades. Many, many people telling us that humankind controlled the planet, that we were the dominant species that we could do what we liked with it. There was no problem we couldn't sort out through the human genius, our technology and firepower and all the rest of it. Really, I think that's, I hope, gone forever. That sense of vulnerability, the precariousness of our current civilization. And I hope that leads to greater humility when we talk about what we need to do to put right the damage that we've done in the past. And the second thing that I think has gone away is what is described in America as small state politics, that the, the, the state is in itself the problem that we have to deal with and everything should be disposed of through the market. Well, those people who glorify the workings of the market, I hope they're sitting there now realizing the idiocy of their ideological errors. We can't do what we need to do in the world today without the state, without government, properly elected, accountable, democratically accountable governments being massively involved in helping to shape different and better ways of making life possible for 9 billion of us on this planet. So this whole crazy ideological neoliberal moment spasm that we've been living through for the last 40 years, where people literally wanted to put the market in the place of the state to make everything happen, whether that was health or educational, social care, let alone the conventional economy, that's gone. That's completely gone, and that will never come back again. We will never see that, um, the excesses of that uh, small state neoliberal ideology um, rule our lives again. And personally, I think that's a good thing. I'm, I'm not saying that everything the states do, the governments do around the world are brilliant. They're not, obviously. But you can't, we can't do what we need to do without governments being at the heart of what has to happen. Another interesting question which is kind of like a, sounds like a breakaway question, which is how can we intentionally and compassionately disconnect and move towards a domestic and localized economy? It sounds like, you know, let's just sort it out, live in, a, in our own bubble and regenerate people and planet on our own. Um, yeah, no, I'm intrigued by that. And although I was saying earlier that I do understand why governments are 
kind of exhorting people to get back to conventional measures of economic success, the spend that people put back into the economy, levels of GDP per capita, etc. I honestly do understand that. But equally, I'm pretty aware of the fact that that isn't going to work as um, dramatically as people think that it might. And bit by bit, I think we're going to see a move away from our obsessive dependence on GDP measures of progress, as more and more people find more and more ways of making their own lives more resilient in their communities at the local level through mutual self-help organizations, whether it's a question of growing more food that one needs locally. I think bit by bit, we're going to see an acceptance that the big economy isn't the only means by which our quality of life is enriched. And the money that we earn by the work that we do in the big economy is just one measure of progress. And there are a lot of other measures of progress. I think we're going to struggle to get back to economic growth as the measure of progress for the whole of humankind over the next few years. I don't see that. And as the economy goes through that very painful transition period, I'm absolutely convinced we will see more and more of people's understanding that quality of life, well-being is going to come from a multitude of diverse sources at the local level, not just from the income we earn through formal employment. And that's the beginning of the fracturing of our obsessive dependence on a GDP-driven mm-hmm. notion of prosperity. So on that, though, you know, we all want governments to do more. Uh, and I think this is a great um, question to end on from Saskia, which is, how can we join or um, join movements that push governments that focus on getting the biggest polluters or emitters to change their models? Obviously, you have to elect a government every three years. How can you use that as a leverage point to push on them to change the system? Yeah, and all within this compacted time frame. These things have to happen within, within the decade. Um, and as I, I started off by saying that everything depends on this narrowing this gap between the science and the policy, the political responses, and I think that is true. And for me personally, that means we're going to see a a much greater dependence on civil disobedience of one kind or another, because I don't believe politicians will move as fast and as far as they need to move without a lot of additional pressure coming from civil society, coming from us as citizens, including the use of nonviolent direct action. So it becomes completely unacceptable for any government anywhere in the world to continue, for instance, to subsidize fossil fuels, to continue to invest in high carbon, carbon intensive infrastructure, for instance. It becomes completely unacceptable, for instance, in a country like New Zealand, where you've got renewable energy uh, on, uh, at every point in your system, if you chose to go to 100% renewable electricity, not to push really hard for 100% electric vehicles mm. just to say these are the obvious things we can do in New Zealand we can't yeah. save the world in New Zealand but boy can we do some sensible stuff down here and continue to set a lead in areas that really matter and then governments have to be held to account stop being so undemanding of yourselves <laughs> stop being so unambitious do not give us any more of this bloody rhetoric about we know the climate crisis is really important and then you sit around and come up with what are essentially utterly useless incremental policies. Seize hold of this moment Mm. and make something of it. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 